so started doing all this self-education when my wife ultimately had to leave her teaching job for the time and that ultimately led me to real estate is what I felt like was my highest and best use and best chance to make additional income on the side while also still being able to work my corporate job and build up that business. And so, you know, through that, we started investing in single family, like a lot of people do. And ultimately, when I realized and had some success and saw that it was working and that everything that I had learned could work, generate income, I wanted to scale it up. And so that ultimately led me to multifamily and to where we are now. And so we just kept going bigger and bigger. It seemed like with each deal as the progression continued. That was Kyle Jones. Stay tuned for this and much more. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley. And for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right. Welcome, partners. Again, I'm your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Kyle Jones. So Kyle is the president of TruePoint Capital, and you specialize in multifamily, right? But Kyle, welcome to the show. That's right. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me, Jake. Well, Kyle, I'm really excited to get into it. But for our listeners out there that you know haven't met you yet, I'd love to start the show with a little bit of background on who you are, how you got to investing in the multifamily segment. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, who I am as a person and as an individual, I'm first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus. Then I'm a husband and then I'm a father and then I'm a multifamily investor. If there's any other things in there that describe me, but you know, I think just to get right into it, I started looking to get into multifamily as a way to just generate some additional income for my family. You know, we were in a position where it's a long story of this health journey that really incorporated my wife's health journey and her ultimately having to leave her teaching job for a time period about 10 years ago that launched me on this quest to generate additional income for our family. You know, I had just started a new career. I was a software sales individual working for a large corporation at the time, but it was kind of an entry-level sales position. And so really wasn't making a whole lot of money initially going into it. And so started doing all this self-education when my wife ultimately had to leave her teaching job for the time. And that ultimately led me to real estate is what I felt like was my highest and best use and best chance to make additional income on the side while also still being able to work my corporate job and build up that business. And so you know, through that, we started investing in single family, like a lot of people do. And ultimately, when I realized and had some success and saw that it was working and that everything that I had learned could work, generate income, I wanted to scale it up. And so that ultimately led me to multifamily and to where we are now. And so we just kept going bigger and bigger. It seemed like with each deal as the progression continued. Well, I think that's a really great story. I hate the, to hear that you had to go through some health issues to kind of get there, but I think that's the turning point for a lot of folks, right? Is that there's 
some fork in the road that really drives you towards, you know, hey, look, we need to bring some more income. And I think that's also kind of the mission of this podcast is to help people see that there is a way to generate income. And, you know, you're active in it, obviously. And, you know, the listener out there are looking for a way to potentially have the same benefits without having to go out there and figure out how to buy your own multifamily and run it and be the property manager and and go get there. But I'd love, maybe if we could dig in just a little bit more on how did you find real estate? Well, I think I've always had an interest in real estate just in general. My dad was also a software sales account rep growing up and he had always kind of talked about, hey, if he had to do it over again, he would have gotten more into real estate or at least gotten more interested and started investing in real estate at a younger age. And in college, I spent countless times when I wasn't studying and playing baseball, I was watching Flip This House, which was a popular show back then. And I don't even know if it's still around, but I started watching it when it was one of the original you know, guys going through it and just watching the creation process, I thought was, was just something that always stuck with me. It, one of the guys that uh, it was the guy in San Antonio, I can't even think of his name right now, but uh, you know, he talked more about creating income versus just going out and finding a job. And so, you know, I saw the power of real estate going out and being able to actually create something. You know, I think that's really telling in this day and age with the market that we're in, you know, there's a lot of properties for sale out there, but not all of them are deals. And I think for me, a lot of the best deals that we have done are not necessarily the ones that look great on paper, but it's the ones that actually we're we're getting creative and we're having to think outside the box to generate additional income. So is one, was it Armando Montalongo? Yeah. (laughs) I figured you might think of it. <laughs> yeah. I just remember he might've been the guy that started the whole like concept of like driving and talking into your cell phone as a yeah. way to communicate videos. I distinctly remember that, but yeah, that was a great show. I remember watching it too. But I guess thinking through maybe your transition, right? Cause I, I totally agree with real estate. Like I believe it's the fastest and safest way to build wealth, right? Period. I've been at it myself for 15 years, but I guess your transition from doing, you know, the smaller stuff up into multifamily. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Yeah. What kind of started that was at the time I was self-funding everything with all my single family homes. And so eventually after a few of investments, we ran out of our capital that we had set aside to continue to invest. And so, you know, trying to figure out a way to continue to do deals with not necessarily having my own money led me down this path of syndications and studying up on that and realizing that what I know now is, you know, you can actually build the same model with the single family, but that in combination with me also working towards very aggressively to replace my expenses with additional income. So I wanted to be able to generate enough income from my real estate investments to be enough to cover expenses. And then ultimately from there, once I hit that goal, then it became a goal to actually replace my income. And by this point I was making better money and was more well into my career as a software sales professional, working for IBM at the time when I really started seeing my real estate investing grow exponentially. And so it was more the economies of scale that, that I felt that I was better protected 
with the risk of occupancy. You know, if a tenant moves out with single family, it's like, hey, you're 100% vacant. And depending on the size of the property, if one tenant moved out of your multifamily property, you know, you're more than likely on a larger multifamily still 98, 99% occupied, which is still very good. So you have all these other tenants that are still paying rent. And so you spread out your risk in that kind of scenario. While also for me, you know, being able to work towards hitting some of those goals to replace my income. Yeah, I think you really hit on a really key point too that I've run through personally myself is that when you're in this single family or four units and below, right, it's considered residential. And it's like, it's all you, right? Like if you're going to go invest, it's like, you've got to have the cash to come up with this thing. It's your credit, it's your guarantee. It's all of these things. And like, you just reach a point where like, you can't do anymore. And I was actually writing a little article on LinkedIn today about this of like, you just hit this limit where it's like, you almost have to just wait. It's a function of like, I've hit the limit. Now I've got to wait for the market or like these improvements or the rents to go up so I can then turn around and do it again and refinance. And it becomes very tedious. Is that similar in your experience when you kind of transition into the larger stuff, being able to just do more? Yeah, exactly. And for me, a lot of the projects that we were buying on the single family needed some form of work. And so having the contractor spread out and I live in Houston's a big city and not all these homes were right in the same neighborhood. And so I was using the same contractor, but it was still difficult for him to gain economies of scale with these projects. Cause it wasn't like they were right next to each other. So, you know, even from that perspective as well, you know, when you come in and you're renovating units, you can move through that pretty quickly. A, a contractor that is well experienced can handle that and work efficiently with turning over units and making renovations, you know, flooring, paint, all that, and can generally knock it out really quickly because, you know, he's not having to get in a car and go. And the only time he's doing that is maybe to go get more paint or whatever. So, you know, that's what we experienced. And I guess in terms of where are you investing? Are you really focused in the Texas market or are you kind of looking all over? What's your geography? Yeah, right now we started in primarily all over the Southeast and right now we're pretty fixated in Texas. So Houston, San Antonio, Austin areas. And then we also invest pretty heavily in the Northern Alabama area. Okay. Well, I'm going to change gears a little bit here and really kind of focus in on limited partners. So you're bringing investors into your deals now, I guess, as you think about the value that you're able to bring to them, how do you explain it? What does a limited partner get by investing in a multifamily deal with you guys? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it, one of the things that we always talk about is it's, this is no longer an exclusivity type of offering. You know, there's lots of people out there that are able to do this, which is, which can be good and bad. I think it's good because, you know, the limited partners have a plethora of deals to, you know, kind of compare them to if they're working with multiple operators, if you will, you know, on the negative side, there's a lot of people doing it that probably don't really know what they're doing. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't know everything, but one of the things that I think has really contributed to my personal success in this space is surrounding myself with a very strong team, a very strong team of professionals, you know, especially like right now we're pretty heavily focused on developing and, you know, we're developing 250, 350 unit size properties. And me personally, not having any experience in that, knew that I needed to go find a partner that did. 
which led me to a guy that had been working for a REIT, developing for this REIT for 20 plus years, engineer background and all that. So he really knew how to put all the right people in place and take that approach. And so, you know, that's how I, you know, kind of caution people from a limited partner standpoint, looking into this, you know, because the access is there, you know, they really have to come in and they actually do have to educate themselves a little bit. You know, it's not as much as somebody would need to on the operator side, but they need to be able to understand some of the mechanics of what makes a good deal. And okay, I see, you know, if somebody's forecasting increasing rents, you know, what does that percentage look like and how long is it going to take to increase rents? And so there's like little things like that they should be able to vet and understand. I mean, you know, in this market, if somebody is being a very aggressive for their underwriting and their pro forma, they should know that they should be able to spot that. And they should also be able to spot, you know, if it's a good market, if it's a good actual location within that market. And so there's just some high level things that I think the average person who, even though they're passive and they don't have all the education, there's some things that they can look for that I think would really help them just being a little bit educated. This last point I thought was really great is that if you look at several deals, you should be able to understand if somebody's being really aggressive, right? Because I think that what I've learned over the course of my journey through this is that, you know, there's some little numbers in these pro formas that can make a really big difference. You know, rent increases have a really big impact on the net OI, the net operating income, which drops to the bottom line. And if you're talking about cap rates near 3%, like the multiplication factor there is it's magnified significantly, but you know, doing diligence on some of these deals, like it really helps, I guess, being able to see where people might be really aggressive because sometimes you have to be really aggressive in this current market in terms of the way you present your numbers for them to pencil. So if somebody came to you and said, Hey, look, I'm looking at some deals and I'm not really sure, like if they're being overly aggressive, what are some big red flags that you would caution somebody to look for or make sure that they're looking at? Yeah, I think since we're talking about rent increases, I would start with there. I mean, and it's really in no particular order. I think these are probably just three or four things that I could look at pretty quickly and tell if somebody's being aggressive and all of them are important. So starting with rent increases, you know, what does that look? And it has a lot to do with the type of property it is and obviously the location. And you can go out to like things like apartments.com and you as a limited partner can look at some neighboring properties and just kind of see, Hey, what's this neighboring property advertising? You know, are we pricing ourselves out of the market or are they truly getting, you know, two and $300 rent bumps? Because if somebody is forecasting two and $300 rent bumps, you know, in year one, that's pretty aggressive to me, especially when you're looking at an average, you know, because when you go in and you buy, you know, larger multifamily. So what I consider larger is probably. You know, I think by definition, anything over 50 units, but I think of it even a little bit larger than that, you know, maybe let's focus on the hundred unit range. Cause that's primarily what I see anywhere from hundred to 350 units is average property size in the markets that we're in. So, you know, if, if somebody's coming in and forecasting, even on a hundred unit property that, Hey, they're going to see $200 rent bumps on average. And if they have that in their model as that they're going to achieve that in the first year that ain't happening you're not going to turn over 100 leases for 200 dollars and rent bumps in year one you know i'm not saying it's not going to happen over time but what i'm saying is 
it is very aggressive to automatically assume that you're going to increase rents across the board in the first year. You know, just even in the first three months, could even be six months, depending on the property, you're just still going to be transitioning the property and getting familiar with the market. And so you don't have a hundred percent turnover and you're not necessarily going to gouge somebody who's wants to renew, you know, you're going to increase their rents on renewal, but you're not going to increase it up by, you know, two and $300. I mean, depending on the market, right? So that's a big red flag for me is how aggressive are they being in the first year with rent bumps? The other one, you mentioned cap rate. And so I think if they are forecasting that cap rates are not going to move or they're going to stay the same, or they're actually going to lower over the course of the next five years, six years, especially with the rising interest rates, that's a little bit reckless to me. You know, whoever is in this space needs to be forecasting at least a little bit higher cap rate than what they're buying at today, just based on the common sense of rising interest rates alone. And you can actually influence the numbers and the returns quite a bit by just changing the cap rate number from where your exit is. And so, you know, you don't even have to add any kind of rent bumps in that case to, to make it look like a great deal. And so that's a little scary. And that's so. one, right? Where like, I mean, we're talking about a change in like a fraction of a percentage. Absolutely. Right? You know, we're saying, hey, the cap rates are now three and a half percent. And we're saying, oh, it's going to go to 3.25. That's such right. a small number that like, if you're looking at somebody's deck, you're like, oh, okay, that doesn't seem unreasonable. That has a massive impact, especially the lower yeah. you go. Like it's really important. So I'm glad you called that out. Thank you. I think that's key. And then the other big one for me that we're seeing is rising costs of taxes and insurance. So everywhere, every county across the nation is seeing an increase in taxes and then every market that i'm aware of it has seen an increased cost of insurance and so if those are flat across the underwriting and usually most people have line items that they should be willing to share with you on what they're forecasting or if not you can just ask them but there has to be an increase in taxes and insurance over time and we learned the hard way honestly with a couple of our deals that we bought you know four and five years ago and we didn't forecast the insurance. I don't think anybody really could have forecasted how aggressive insurance has gone up across the board. But, you know, in some of our markets, we saw, you know, two and a half times increase just in three and four years. So that's how aggressive it is right now. And I honestly don't see that slowing down from what I'm hearing with just the cost of doing business these days and inflation and then the amount of claims that are out there. So those are kind of the three key items that I would look at. I could probably, you know, take up another 30 minutes of your show and go through it, but <laughs> those are like the high points that I think are pretty easy for most people to get educated on and, and kind of vet as they're looking at other deals. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point, right? Because if you're looking at a deal, I think that you can go into like heavy diligence mode and get completely overwhelmed and like wear yourself out. But if you have a couple of things, just some basic assumptions that you can go and look and be like, does this make sense to me? Like, what are they doing with cap rates? What are they doing with the rent increases? Yeah. What are they looking at with like just basic, you know, taxes and insurance costs you can't avoid? What do they look like? And if you get a, a funky feeling about any and all of those, if you get all of them, you probably should just keep looking, right? But if you get a feeling like these are the questions that you should be asking, right? And I think that's great. And you can start because like when you're investing with somebody, it's a long horizon, right? And you get to where the end of where you thought it was going to be. And what if we're in a weird market cycle? 
and like the best thing to do is just to kind of refinance or move through it and keep going. You need to know how the investors you're working with are thinking, right? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Which that brings up another point with how they're structuring their debt and you know, how are they building in contingencies to be able to do that and withstand that type of environment, especially in today's market? You know, are there extensions in place? A lot of people are only able to do any deals in this market because of the bridge market, which, you know, a lot of people are starting to pull back as well. And some of the debt funds aren't being as aggressive as they were in 2021. Now there's still some small guys popping up now. We're seeing a lot of that, but we're also seeing a lot of people kind of pull back because of a lot of it had to do with just the interest rate environment in terms of actual length of terms for the debt that's where that will really come in and you want to make sure hey if we do have to hold on to this thing which this shaped my investing perspective right now i want to make sure that i'm investing in a property that's in a good location that i could feel safe going to and that it's in a really well located area and that number two on the debt side that, hey, if I had to hold this thing for 10, 15 years, could we and would we want to, which has pushed me more into the development again, because a lot of these buildings, I've seen it, they take a lot of time and money to continue to maintain these properties that were built in the 60s, 70s and 80s, even, even if they're located well, you know, they're still taking up quite a bit of capital to just maintain because it's just an older building older structure on that age thing i think that's a really great point because you think about like when you look into a market one you want to know what market you're comfortable investing in right or is there net population growth is there like not concentration on specific employers like if they put this one employer pulls out like the whole thing could go kaput but then yeah. you know age of units right like there's a lot of older stuff that are in great locations now maybe when they were originally built they're kind of on the outskirts but now they're like in the heart of things but functional obsolescence of a unit, like people just don't want to live in that anymore. You know, seven and a half foot ceilings, you know, 800 yes. square feet, like one bathroom. There's a lot of that out there and it exists. So, I mean, there's a risk in the building itself. It's not just like, is this what we're going to do? But like most of what we're looking at, and correct me if you see this differently, but there's a value add component, right? I'm going to buy it for the market rate today, knowing that I can turn around and do some things to raise rent, maybe reduce costs, but like maybe reducing costs is out of the window <laughs> for yeah. the foreseeable future. But like, that's the value add. That's where you really bring, you know, the returns, you know, it's kind of like flipping a house, like you're flipping an entire apartment complex building. But I guess the other thing you brought up too, which I thought is, you know, what are the assumptions in year one? Year one is just a transition, right? Like you got new management, you're making renovations, you're probably scaring people off, right? That have lived there and lived in quasi rent control. And like, yes, it's good to turn it, but like you might be doing a lot more renovations in the first year than you thought, right? But you know, I'd love to like kind of get your thoughts on some of those things. Yeah, for me, everything's pretty flat in terms of expenses and rent growth. So we really don't start forecasting any amount of rent growth until year two. You know, we generally, to be conservative, we do forecast taxes to increase. I mean, going in, we know where our insurance is. So insurance year one, we're not taking what the current owner, we're just going based off of our current quote and then increasing it from there year over year. But the biggest assumption that I think that gets left off is that people don't realize for exactly what you were just talking about, you're going to experience some vacancy. Every transition we've gone through, we have always experienced vacancy, whether that lasts for one or two months 
we're experiencing it and it's now been seven months since we bought it and we're still climbing out of the hole from just the mass exodus that we saw in the first two months of ownership. And so, you know, you just want to make sure that somebody or whoever the operator is that they're looking at it with that same lens because, you know, that's conservative because again, if nothing happens, then great, even better. Now you're going to make more money on that type of deal. But those are, you know, the couple things to call out. But the main thing is that at a minimum, keeping everything flat. Yeah, great point. Well, I know we're running up, you know, here on time, getting ready to close. Is there anything else that you think is worth sharing that would help make this episode complete? I would just reiterate, even though it's a passive limited role, it's not like you don't want to just sit back and don't do any homework. There's some things you don't have to be an expert, but like we talked about a few of those on this episode, and then even just educating yourself on specific markets, which there's just so much information out there right now that, I mean, most people should know that it's a good market, but you know, I will say not all sub markets in Dallas, Texas are growing and booming in places that you want to live and invest in. And that's the biggest key that we drill another couple layers deep inside of, oh, this deals in Dallas. I know Dallas is booming or Austin, like all these notable cities that are growing. Yes, they are, but not every sub market is growing. And so passive investors need to understand that. Well, Kyle, I like to end every episode with like just an opportunity to give somebody a shout out, a little bit of gratitude. Because, you know, along the way, somebody's giving you a leg up that you probably didn't deserve and want to give you an opportunity in the public forum to, to maybe give somebody a shout out and say thank you. Man, there's a lot of people to thank. I think the, the first person that comes to mind is my wife. You know, she's stuck by me through all of my, you know, mad scientist type of ideas. And most of them have paid off, I'll say. So she's the one that I owe my biggest thanks to, but you know, in that same light, you know, I'm always here. I make myself pretty available to people who want to reach out or just want to jump on a call. Happy to always do that. And so people can reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of those. So anybody that hears this and wants to have a call and talk further, I'm happy to do that. Well, I love it. And I totally agree with you about the wife being very supportive. It makes a really big difference when, you know, you take some leaps of faith and somebody standing behind you saying like, I actually really believe in you. But Kyle, Absolutely. this has been a great show. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows. So I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.